John chapter 10, verses 7 to 18. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and they shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. The com- this command I received from my father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sam. So it's my privilege to introduce Anna this morning. And, uh, and as she flew in from Melbourne and picked her up at 8.30, which means that she was up at quarter to two Perth time and I think finished preaching and leading the service on Thursday night at about 8.45pm. So that was a long day. Um, it but was. <laughs> hopefully feeling good, feeling good this morning after... I'm feeling okay. Feeling, feeling, <laughs> getting there, yeah. Um, uh, after your adventurous day yesterday in Perth. So uh, I'm just going to pray for Anna, and then she's going to share the word with us. Father, we thank you for uh, Anna's ministry across Australia in, uh, within the Uniting Church. We thank you for the opportunity to encourage and build up and equip people um, in the, the ministry of bringing the gospel um, to a world which desperately needs it. We thank you for her heart, her passion. We thank you for the word that you've placed in our heart today for us. And we pray you'd open our hearts and our ears and our minds to receive what you'd have to give to us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is fantastic to be here. Um, This is actually... I'm I'm just going to move things around if that's all right. Uh, This is actually my first time in Western Australia. Um, And I have to say, I I was expecting it to be a a little warmer and actually I've been freezing cold until sitting in your beautiful, warm church building. So this is fantastic. Um, Yeah, so I have been working for Propel for uh, about the last nine months and I know that you've been going on a bit of a journey um, uh, as a church wondering, are we going to join this network? So Propel um, basically exists to be uh, an encouraging network. Uh, what we want to do is help uh, churches and leaders right across the country to be um, to remember that we're not alone, that we're not isolated, 
is there a lot of feedback here? Um, and, uh, and to be encouraged to focus on the main thing, which is to call people to the life and the hope that we have in Jesus. So it's a, it's a very positive and uh, an encouraging network. And I've been doing that since uh, July last year. Prior to that, um, I was leading a church for 10 years um, in Melbourne, and uh, that was fantastic and um, challenging and full of life and full of tears and basically it was just normal church, right? Um, I, I'm married. Uh, my husband Dave is, um, well, just like the best guy I know. And uh, we've been married for, I don't know, 23 years, something like that. And, um, and we've got four kids. And I'm, I'm getting used to the fact that my oldest child is about to turn 21, which is just... Can't even comprehend that. So she's about to turn 21, then I've got a 19-year-old, and I have twins who are 17 and currently in year 12. So that's a little bit of me. Clearly, I have not much to do with my, you know, with my time. Um, so today, we are uh, going to look at what it means to walk in the way of Jesus and uh, to walk in what I want to call the good and beautiful life. Who here would like to have a good and beautiful life? Yeah, right? Exactly. There's, there's Everyone is a taker. I want that. I want a good and a beautiful life. I want a life that has meaning and significance and purpose. And I want a life that, that is filled with joy, that is filled with hope, that kind of radiates with, with the loveliness and, and the beauty of God, the good and beautiful life. And so my question that I start off with is, what are we afraid of, though? Um, when I was a kid, I, uh, I used to be very afraid of the dark, or not so much the dark, but what I imagined was in the dark, right? And, and I had, and still do have, a very uh, overactive imagination. As a kid, um, there was a period of time where I would go to bed at night and my, you know, my dad would, would do the story time and he'd pray with us and he'd always you know, say a blessing over us. And then uh, I'd lie in bed the door would be shut, the light would be off, and I would lie there, just absolutely petrified, imagining that in the cupboard there were all sorts of like, nameless, scary creatures, and underneath the bed there were like there were terrifying creatures, and I would lie there, and my mind would just like conjure up images, and I would uh, freak myself out, and there would come a tipping point regularly where my fear of what would happen if I moved and my need for help would suddenly collide, and then that was the point where I would move, and generally. Uh, the moving looked like sort of bursting out of bed and running screaming down the hall, Dad! And Dad would pick me up, take me back to bed, everything's fine. Anyone else ever been wildly afraid? No, that's okay. You might not be afraid of the dark, but we have fears. Oh, you have, yeah. Like We fear all sorts of different things. Um, it's a very unusual person that is never afraid at all. Um, this passage of scripture that was just read to us, um, we're going to, to work our way through it. And in this passage of scripture, uh, what we see, we find Jesus talking with a group of people and really addressing their fears and addressing um, sort of the conflict between the life that we want, the, the desire that we have within us, that we would have life, 
that our lives would have meaning and significance and purpose. And the fear that often binds us and stops us from actually living in the hope that Jesus has for us. Um, I want to give you a little bit of background to this, uh, to this passage. Jesus, um, according to how John has written uh, his account, Jesus has been slowly revealing that he's a little bit unusual. John begins his gospel by saying this, and I think we've got the slide There we go. John chapter 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, so this is Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. In the beginning, was God. The Word of God, with God, was God, the creator of all. In him was life, and that life is the light of all people. And so John begins his account by just telling us this is who we're dealing with. Every time you see Jesus, hold in your minds that when we're looking at Jesus, we are looking at the creator of the universe. When we look at Jesus, as we read our way through John's gospel, we are supposed to be remembering constantly that this man who is walking, who is talking, who is healing, who is confronting authority, this man here standing in front of these people is the very person who spoke into the darkness and commanded light to appear. That's a pretty phenomenal claim, right? This is who we're dealing with when we are dealing with Jesus. And so when we're thinking about how we are to have a good and beautiful life, John says, well, in Jesus is life. Without Jesus, there is no life. In Jesus is a life that pulses out and brings light, hope, beauty, goodness. And so this is the beginning of John's gospel. And then he carefully constructs this account to kind of give us these snapshots where we're suddenly um, sort of shown something of who Jesus is. We get this snapshot of Jesus uh, talking to uh, you know a, a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, someone who is outcast he shouldn't be speaking to. And here he is speaking to her and speaking life and hope and giving her dignity and value. We see these moments of Jesus uh, healing people. We see Jesus uh, at a wedding, and you know we know the story. It's everyone's favourite story. Jesus is at a wedding. They run out of wine, and Jesus just takes ordinary water, and he turns it into wine. He's, he's the one who brings celebration and hope. In that act, he's saying, you know, it is worth celebrating life. There's good things. I want to bless you. And so as John picks these different moments, these different snapshots, and he's really specific. He, he actually writes in his gospel, you know, there are, there are so many hundreds, so many countless things Jesus did. If I wrote them all down, there are not enough books in the whole world to contain it. So I've had to be really careful. I'm carefully choosing the moments that I'm writing down. And so we read our way through and, and John is sort of giving us this picture, filling out the picture of who Jesus is, the one who's created the universe. How has he come to us here on this earth? How is he revealing the nature and the character of God? 
And then we fast forward and we make our way to just before this passage that was read out, where we're told that, uh, that Jesus uh, is in a synagogue, it's a Sabbath, and he sees a man who is blind, can't see anything. He's been blind from birth. Here is a man who has been robbed of so many things. He's been uh, robbed of the dignity that, um, that he should have had. He's been robbed of the ability to see the beauty in the earth. He's never seen grass. He's never, ever seen a flower. He never saw his mother smile at him. Can you imagine that? Blind since birth. That, this is what it means. He has been robbed of the ability to perceive the goodness of God in the physical realm. And so Jesus sees this man who is blind. And Jesus, the one through whom all things were made, Jesus, the one in whom is life, and that life is the light of all people, sees this one man and heals him, gives him sight. And it's just extraordinary. People are amazed and people are confused and they're wondering, like as they look at this man, Jesus, well, he's a man standing here. And yet this is unusual, right? I mean, I've never seen a man who's been able to just go up to someone else, spit in the dirt, make a paste, put it in their eyes, tell them to go and wash and suddenly someone can see. There's, we're dealing with something unusual here in Jesus. And John is writing this account because he's trying to get our attention and show us how Jesus is walking and talking and displaying, revealing the nature and character of God. And so here is this man who has been blind all of his life, who has had so much of the goodness and the beauty of life stolen from him. And Jesus comes and he heals him. And then everyone around, they, 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 can't, they can't forget this. And so the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they see that this has happened. And um, well, their response is completely normal, right? They're incredibly upset that the man has been healed because it was the wrong time, right? <laughs> they talk about the um, priorities that are a little bit out of whack here. They're, they're, they're upset with Jesus. Okay, we see that there's something unusual in you. You seem to have some kind of power. But really, if you were really from God, you would have waited at least until Sunday or Monday, right? Priorities out of whack, what does a good and beautiful life look like? For the Pharisees, we see that there is fear there as well. <clears throat> fear that if they step out of line, fear that, that if they don't abide by certain regulations or certain rules that they have created, that maybe God will be displeased with them. They are afraid of the corrupted vision of God that they have. They're not afraid of who God really is, but they have created for themselves this perverted, corrupted vision where they think that the God and creator of the universe who, who put stars in the heavens, who, who created the smallest flower, who designed the idea of babies and how gorgeous they are, that that God would be seriously ticked off because a blind man received sight on a Saturday? 
their vision of God was completely screwed. And because their vision of God was so corrupted, they were bound by fear, unable to step into the life that God actually has for them and for us. And so this is where we find ourselves. This passage that was read out to us where Jesus is speaking, this is him talking with the Pharisees in kind of the fallout from him doing that crazy thing of bringing sight to a blind man. So that we have here... The blind man who's no longer blind, he's now got 20-20 vision. He can see way better than me. Like I take my glasses off and it's kind of like vague out there. He's got perfect vision now. Imagine, picture for yourself this scene. Here is Jesus. Here is the man who has never seen anything in his entire life until that day. And he's brain is probably exploding because he'd be looking at your shirt going, what is that? Blue. (laughs) He doesn't even, he's never seen a colour before. He's never seen a baby's face. He's never seen the brightness of the sky. And this man is sitting there and, and has already been interrogated. And his response to the Pharisees was, well, if you can't work out that this man has come from God, well, I don't even know what to say to you. All I can say is I once was blind and now I can see. And he's just amazed at what Jesus has done for him. But next to this man who is amazed at the beauty that he is now seeing, at the goodness that he is now experiencing, is this group of religious people who are so afraid who was so afraid that somehow we might accidentally step over the line and upset God, that we would rather someone remain blind. We would rather someone stay in darkness than possibly step into the challenging, awkward, confusing territory of bringing life. And this is where we find ourselves. And so in John 10, in the passage that was read, I'm just going to read a few verses before. Um, So from right at the end of chapter 9, Jesus says this, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and that those who see will become blind. And some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this, and they asked, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin, but you claim that you can see, and so your guilt remains. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. But the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice, but they'll never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognise a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees could not understand what he was saying. I love that. There's actually a whole lot of sympathy in the Bible, right? When we read things and go, I I don't know what he's talking about. (laughs) Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves 
and robbers, but the sheep haven't listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They'll come in and they'll go out and they'll find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and that they would have it abundantly. I'm the gate. I'm the shepherd. I'm the source of life. I love, um, as we read this passage, we see Jesus is like fully overlapping his metaphors, right? He's like, I'm the gate and I'm the shepherd and I'm the, you know, he's, he's kind of everything. But first of all, I just want to um, give you a picture that at this time, as Jesus is describing this picture of, you know, sheep in a sheep pen, I wonder whether they were possibly actually sitting, you know, they're in a country town and just out the back is a sheep pen. Um, because the way they actually would look after their sheep is that there was often in villages they would have like a, a communal sheep pen. So, you know, I could get these chairs and like create like a little, a little enclosure and at the front here would be the opening where at night all the different shepherds would come and they'd bring their sheep because, you know, they weren't all wealthy. So, you know, there might be 10 sheep or five sheep or 20 sheep, whatever, but they would share the sheep pen. So all the sheep would go in. And then the gatekeeper was the one who would, was responsible to protect the sheep. And, uh, and the way they would do it is they would lie down across the opening. So they would physically put their body there, lay down there and protect the sheep so that no one could just come in and take the sheep out. The sheep would recognise their own shepherd and in the morning the shepherd would come and call their sheep, come on lamb chop or whatever and the sheep would come and I did have a lamb when I was a kid and my mum thinking that it was, I don't know, funny, called it mincemeat and it died. (laughs) Terrible. I think be very careful about the names we give creatures. But anyway, so you know, the shepherds would come and they'd call their sheep. And um, I've got a, a friend who, um, a beautiful couple that were part of our church, and they live on a, a small kind of hobby farm. And I saw on Facebook recently there's a photo um, of Wes, and he's got these two sort of multicolored sheep that are literally like right up next to him. And his wife said, These sheep are like dogs. Like he'll call them and they will literally, he'll walk around doing his work on the farm and they will follow him around. My sheep hear my voice, they know me and they follow. And so we, we see this picture, if we can imagine this pen filled with sheep, like these sheep are precious. And the role of the gatekeeper was to lie down and protect them. And so Jesus is sort of using this imagery so that we would get an idea of who he is, of, of what he's come to do. He says that anyone who doesn't come through that opening is obviously a thief. Like if you saw someone jump over the fence and then run up to a sheep, stick it under its arm and it's like kicking and squealing and barring and whatever they do, then you know that man or that woman should not be holding the sheep. They have no right. They are robbing that sheep. That is not the way to life. And so Jesus is using this picture, this imagery. And he looks at the man that he's just healed. He looks at the man who's been in darkness his whole life, who's been condemned, And he determines, I I have come that you would have life. 
You've been robbed of all sorts of things. It's, it's time for the thieving to stop. He looks at the Pharisees who are so bound up. Their ability to love God has been stolen from them. And Jesus said, I've come that you would have life, that you wouldn't be robbed anymore. So the first thing I want us to remember, and I think it should come up here, the first point I want to make is that Jesus has come. If we're going to experience the good and beautiful life that he has for us, Jesus has come to set us free from fear. Jesus sets us free from fear. I'm sure you've all heard of Stockholm Syndrome. It's sort of the, the theory that um, sometimes people who have experienced the trauma of being kidnapped um, or held hostage will start to identify with the one who has kidnapped them. And there's a sense here that all of us have are experiencing life, um, that we have Stockholm Syndrome towards sin and death, that we identify ourselves with the fear. We identify ourselves with our captor rather than with God. The Pharisees had made friends with this perverted sense of who God was. A thief had got in. They were so afraid of accidentally breaking God's law that they had themselves created a false fence so afraid to step across the line that they could never experience the life of God. And here comes Jesus saying, I've come that you would have life. Um, I, have a, a little, I have all sorts of creatures at my house. And one of them I have is a little, tiny, little yellow canary. And this yellow canary called Frenchie because she has like a little beret thing. Um, Frenchie is gorgeous. We've had Frenchie for, for years. We had other canaries, but they've all died. But Frenchie has survived. And uh, anyway, we've got quite a large cage. And, um, and Frenchie was quite happy in that cage until I had to move our furniture around. And I noticed that she wasn't really in, in much sunlight and was looking really depressed. Wasn't singing anymore and was just sort of sitting at the bottom of the cage. And I felt really sad. I saw this like, beautiful little yellow bird. Like, that's not what your life is supposed to be for. So I opened, I never done, because I was always afraid that if I opened the cage up, she'd, I don't know, something would happen. She wouldn't come back. But I thought, it can't be worse than, than what you're experiencing now. So I opened the top of the cage up. And I thought that Frenchie would just like whew, fly out, but no. What do you think Frenchie did? Sat there at the bottom for ages. And, you know, I was trying to coax her out, but she actually stayed lower down at the bottom of the cage because, and she'd look up like, what the heck? Like, there's, there's no cage over me. I don't know what to do. I feel afraid. And so over time, over days, I had to coax her out. And eventually, Frenchie kind of hopped up to, to kind of sit on the very top of the cage and would, would look out a bit and then would go back down. And then after, you know, a few more days, my husband went, no, nah, come on, enough's enough. And he went over and, and like, kind of shoot her out. And then Frenchie sort of flew across and then came back, and then suddenly Frenchie realised I can, I can like fly with my wings. And so now, um, what Frenchie does is Frenchie will fly to wherever the sunlight is, 
and sit in the sunlight and it's the cutest thing. And then, and then at night, we'll come back to her cage. So but she knows where home is. She knows what's safe. But she has freedom. Until last week, uh, I was at home, I was doing work, and Frenchie had been flying around, it was all wonderful, and then I noticed that she suddenly went a little crazy, and it, she'd never done this, she sort of flew into the, um, like into the window, and then flew around, and then went down to a windowsill and was shaking, and I thought, what, what's going on? And then I looked outside, and I saw that there was this big bird with a really nasty looking beak, and it was right there, and Frenchie had seen a predator. And suddenly was afraid again. And so, um, you know, I had to, had to help Frenchie get back into her cage and then she was okay. Jesus comes and he notices the predators that we have. And he confronts the predators. He confronts fear head on. He comes unmasking the presence of an enemy. And in this passage, he names it as a thief. He says there is a thief. And it has come to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that you would have life. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. We have it here. It says it this way. Since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and that he might free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus has come in the flesh. And John describes the way Jesus acts and worked and the things that he did. But Jesus came so that he would free us who have been held in slavery by our fear of death. So that's the first thing. The second thing, we've got the next slide is that the good life originates in Jesus. He is the gate. I love that picture. Jesus says, I'm the gate. I'm the gate for the sheep. So I'm the one who lies down and protects the sheep. I'm also the one who then can get up and, and create space. And he says, the sheep will go in and they'll come out. They'll enjoy good pasture. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It sounds like freedom. It sounds like me opening Frenchie's cage and saying, off you go. You can fly. Enjoy. Find the sunlight. You can come back. I will take care of you and protect you from predators. Jesus says, I'm the one who will protect you and I'll the one who, I'm the one who will show you the path of freedom. Life, good pasture, the good life comes from the way of Jesus. Gates open and close. Right? They're not supposed to just always be open. They open and close. They keep bad things out. They allow good things in. It's a picture of freedom with boundaries. So the good life, the life that we want, a life that is purposeful and meaningful and good for us and good for others, comes from God. And you know, in the very beginning of the Bible, we discover where goodness comes from, and we're told that as God creates all things, he creates light out of darkness, he creates you know, animals and, and, uh, and everything that exists. As God creates, he names it good. Life comes from God and he names it good. The good life literally comes from him. 
And so we see here this picture that, that the good life is to be enjoyed within God's healthy, life-giving boundaries. There's, a, there's an enclosure for the sheep. There's boundaries which protect. There's a gate, so there's a right way to live that leads to good pastures, that leads to life. G.K. Chesterton was a fantastic writer who was a journalist and a writer, and he said, imagine a mountain, a high mountain, and on the very top of this mountain, um, there was a playground with all the funnest equipment you know, for kids to play on. But the sides of the mountain were steep, like cliffs. And even though there was like every possible you know, fun play equipment, he said, if there is no fence around it, then what you would discover is all the children would be right in the middle, too afraid to run and explore just in case they fell off the edge. But if you put a fence around it, you create a boundary, then those children are free to run as far as they would like. They will explore, they'll climb the trees, they'll swing on the swings because they know that they are kept safe. Freedom is best experienced within boundaries. The good life that God has for us um, isn't just a life where we do whatever we like. The good life is defined by God, the one who names things good. The Genesis story tells us that not only does God name things good, but he specifically keeps for himself the right to define what is good and what is not good. And that actually the conflict that we experience in our lives comes from us wanting to define what is good and what is evil and rejecting God's power and authority to define good and evil. That's literally the Genesis 3 story, the tree set in the middle of the garden, the tree of life or the tree of good and evil. Will we trust God to be the one who not only gives life, but tells us how to experience it in goodness? If we can't trust him, then all that follows is non-life. That's just, that's just logic. That's one of the things that I love about the Bible. It's incredibly logical. We trust that God, the giver of life, can define what the good life is and walk in his ways. Or it's described this way in Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. The one that John writes said that in him was life, and that life was the light of all people. Paul writes in Philippians 2 that this is what the good life of Jesus looks like. It looks like humbling himself, making himself a servant, humbling himself even to death on a cross and allowing God the Father to exalt him. That's what the good life looks like? That's a little bit different, right? So we see here, we're starting to get this picture that the way we experience life, the way we step into the good life might be different to how we would define it. That there are boundaries that surround us. That there is freedom that comes as we trust in God, our maker. And that the good life is defined by giving it up rather than holding on to it. The third thing that I want to encourage us from 
from this passage is that the beautiful life, so we don't just want a good life, right? We want a beautiful life. And the beautiful life looks like resurrection. The beautiful life looks like resurrection, which means, as Paul wrote in Philippians, that it includes death, that it includes self-sacrifice, that it includes humility, that it includes trust in the God who gave us life in the first place to actually restore life to us. Yesterday, I... um, I'd gone down the street. I was uh, to Fremantle. I was going to like prepare this, and um, anyway, I found my way to South Beach. I'd never been there before because I've never been to Western Australia, and um, I sort of was wandering around. And I walked down. What's it called? A groin, the groin, you know, so that the outcropping into the water. And so I'd walked down there, and uh, I was having this lovely, lovely time. It was a beautiful day. <clears throat> and there, there weren't very many people around, but there was a woman standing at the end of the groin, like right up on the rocks. And um, I sort of vaguely saw her. I wasn't actually paying much attention, to be honest, until she turned around and, um, and said, oh, did you see the dolphins? I said, no, I didn't. I didn't see that. I wanted to see dolphins, but no, I didn't see dolphins. That would have been beautiful. And, uh, and she she said, oh, I was just, I was standing here and I was trying really hard to meditate and I couldn't. And I just, I was feeling like really bad. And then I opened my eyes and I saw these dolphins. And then I thought, I'll try again. And I was trying to meditate. And, uh, and then she just, she sort of started crying. And I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> and I said, are you okay? And she just properly started to cry. Um, and... I said to her, can I pray for you? And she, you know, she could have said anything, but she kind of climbed down from the rocks and came and stood next to me. And um, I said, I'm a Christian, uh, so I, if it's all right, I'll, I'd love to pray for you um, in the name of Jesus. And she just sort of, I put my arm around her and she just kind of cried some more. And I'm thinking I have no idea what I've just stepped into. And so I just started praying for her and I prayed that God who is with us, that God would reveal his love to her, that she would be surrounded by the goodness of God, that she would be comforted by the comforting presence of God, that she would know that she is loved by Jesus. And she literally just started sobbing there. And so I'm like, (laughs) whatever this is, God, you, you know, tell me what to do. And, um, you know, I said to her, what, What's going on? And she said, oh, my dad died two years ago. And ever since then, I just miss him. And my whole family has just kind of fallen apart. And I was standing here, like right on the edge, on the rocks, feeling overwhelmed. And I had just thought, I just wish that there was someone I could talk to. And then I turned around and you were there. And she said, I think maybe God sent you. (laughs) And I said, I think he did too. (laughs) So anyway, I didn't really spend much time preparing my message yesterday because I spent two hours with her. And it was amazing. Um, You know, she's from a um, a completely non-Christian background. And she just kept asking me question after question after question about life, about death, about about what our hope is. And I'm like, this is freaking awesome. <laughs> this is what it means, isn't it, to be a follower of Jesus. 
Because I can talk about how Jesus takes away our fear. I can talk about how Jesus has come that we would experience a good life. I can talk about the beautiful life that we find in Jesus. But I have to say this, it's not a philosophy. It's not an idea. This is reality. Because if all of the things that I've been talking about is just something that we go, yeah, 2,000 years ago there was this you know, guy, maybe, maybe like God was really in him and he did this stuff, but it was a long time ago. And now we've just got to work out how to live a good life. Then who cares? What we are talking about as Christians is reality. Paul said it this way, if, if all we hope for is essentially that Jesus would make our life here on this earth a bit better, then we should be pitied above all people. Our hope is not just that we would have a better life or a nicer life or a beautiful life the way the world would would define it. Our hope is that Jesus has actually come to undo the very power of death, that Jesus has come to destroy the power of the thief, who has stolen our life, that Jesus has come to lay his life down. See, it's not just an idea when Jesus gives this picture, I'm the gate and I lay my life down for the sheep. What he means is I have authority to lay my life down unto death only to take it up again. I have authority to defeat death itself. This is not a philosophy that we're talking about. A beautiful life is a life that says no matter the challenges that we face, and we will face them, no matter the disappointments that we will experience, and we will experience them, no matter what other people say or do or what happens with our finances or what happens in our family, no matter any of that, that the God who made all things, the one through whom all things are made, the one in whom is life, the life that is the light of all people, that that God cares enough about you and me and the lady I met yesterday and all the people that are currently in the shops across the road and everyone in your family that don't yet know him who cares enough about our lives, about our future, that he has come himself in the flesh and has taken on our greatest enemy, has taken on the thief and has destroyed the power of death. A beautiful life is resurrection. A beautiful life means we no longer fear death. We don't need to fear the dark and what's in the dark. Because do you know what's in the dark? Jesus. We don't need to fear death. Because who's already gone through it? Jesus has. There is literally nothing at all in this world that would hold us hostage, nothing at all that we are afraid of, that Jesus has not already gone through because he's the gate. So we can go in and we can go out and we can find good pasture in him. So as we finish up today, I just want to encourage us that there is life and that there is hope in the way of Jesus. 
The way of Jesus is not just a philosophy. It's not just hard work. It's actually life. It's real life. And I don't think there's anything more at all that I or anyone else could offer you. Now, I don't know whether you usually stand at the end to pray, but I'd like to invite you to stand. There's a story of a, um, a Russian Orthodox priest um, who lived in Moscow about 100 or so years ago. And, you know, Moscow is cold. It's way colder than Melbourne. And uh, during winter, of course, you know, deep snows, freezing cold. And, uh, and there was a terrible problem of people with um, alcohol addiction. And he used to go out at night and find, the, in particular, the men who had fallen, you know, unconscious, semi-conscious from alcohol. And he would go up to them and he'd hold them in his arms and say, this is beneath you. You were meant to house the fullness of God. You were meant to house the fullness of God. That's, that's the beautiful life. That's the hope that we hold. That's the hope that we hold out to other people. That because of Jesus, His very life is ours through the Holy Spirit. So I want to pray for us now. And uh, this is what I want to pray for. I want to pray for those who maybe have been held in bondage to the fear of death. If you're afraid of that, I want to pray for you because Jesus wants to set you free. He's already gone through it. I want to pray for anyone here who um, you've been actually resisting the authority of God to be the one to define what is good and what is evil. You've been kind of tempted to define that for yourselves. And I just want to give us that opportunity. This is what confession is. Confession is to say, oh God, you're God, I'm not. I am sorry. I'm going to trust in your ways. And then I just want to pray for all of us that we would turn from our selfish ways and walk in the ways of Jesus. So why don't you close your eyes? And if any of those things um, relate to you, why don't you just hold your hands out like this as a just a, a physical way of saying, Jesus, I want to receive from you. I give you my sin, I give you my fear, I give you my hopes, I give you my life. Fill me with you. Lord Jesus, we are here in your presence. And we are thankful that you have come as one of us. It's so hard for our minds even to, to wrap around the reality that the God who made us has become a human like us so that we would see you, so that we would experience life. But we thank you. And today, I just want to pray for um, anyone here who, who has been living under this fear of death or a fear of the future or any fear at all. Jesus, you want us to be set free from fear. So God, I pray for every person here who has been afraid and out of their fear has stayed silent, out of their fear has made dumb decisions. 
Lord, we bring you our fear. And we say, Jesus, reveal your power to us. Reveal your love to us. Reveal your life to us. Lord, I I pray for, for all of us. In different ways, we resist your authority. We try to define what is good and what is evil. We don't trust that you, the giver of life, knows all things. Forgive us. Lord, we, we confess that we are just mere humans and that you are God. Help us to trust you. Teach us to walk in your ways, not ours. Help us to faithfully serve you. And Lord, finally, we just bring our hearts to you. You know that we tend towards selfishness, we tend towards sin. But God, we just need to be filled with your presence. And so I pray for every single person here that you would let your life, your goodness, your beauty just saturate us now through your Holy Spirit. Make us alive in you. Alive, confident, certain that we are held in your good hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.